0: Take your, uh, your, your worship guide, your note sheet tonight, and we'll work through that together. Keep your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians. We'll be uh, largely working through it sort of in order. So we won't be flipping around a whole lot, but we will be moving through, you know, from left to right as normal people read. And so uh, you'll want to keep your copy of God's Word open uh, to make sure that I don't say anything that His Word hasn't said. As we look at the particulars uh, of this letter to the church at Corinth, we know that the author is Paul the Apostle, the the previous persecutor of the Christian church. As we said before, this is his first letter uh, that he wrote being written sometime between 53 and 55 AD. Interestingly enough, around the same time that Mark is writing his gospel of Jesus' life, which many people think was Peter dictating, um, uh, writing to Mark uh, in Mark's gospel. But anyway, written sometime in the mid-50s. As we think about the general context of this letter, we know this, that Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth teaching and preaching and equipping the elders there to lead the church that he had planted in this city. Corinth was a wealthy and influential city in the Roman world. It sat at the crossroads of various different trade routes, and so it was a high traffic area with lots of people uh, coming through and lots of culture and stuff uh, passing through that city. It was a home to much pagan worship. Uh, uh, there in Corinth um, uh, was, a, was a temple to either Apollos or Athena, depending on which scholar is, is looking at it and deciding, but, um, but, but serious worship of false gods and lots of temple prostitution going along with that as well. The Corinthians thems- themselves had a, a love for skilled orators, for speakers and philosophers, such that there, there is in the center of Corinth, in the center of the city forum, a permanent platform made of stone that that traveling, that itinerant uh, uh, speakers, philosophers, rhetoricians would come and, and speak from. They would stand on it, they'd give a speech about philosophy or just whatever they happened to be an expert in, and people would pay to hear these people give lectures. It's quite possible that Paul himself preached the gospel in that forum on that pedestal. But as we know from 1 Corinthians, Paul does not take uh, any payment for the gospel lest uh, the people think that the gospel is something that can be bought or sold. Paul gives it to them freely. Now, the Christian church that grew out of Paul's ministry developed amongst themselves, and we'll see this, many divisions between one another. As in time, they allowed themselves to be swayed and persuaded by influences and by persons and opinions that were uh, incongruent, even contradictory to the gospel that Paul had preached to them. You see there in your note sheet a summary of 1 Corinthians. If you just sum it up in a few sentences, it would be this. 1 Corinthians is the chronological first of Paul's New Testament letters. And in it, he addresses the church in Corinth that he helped to start. Paul is responding in this letter to several issues that he has received word of from believers in Corinth that have served to divide the church along several different lines. This is a letter that's intended to address these issues, issues of division, with the goal of the church in Corinth being unified in Christ and in gospel, letting love and deference guide their life and worship together. There are three major themes in the, in the context of 1 Corinthians, and they are these. First, the church is the body of Christ. The church is the body of Christ, and that will be an important theme, an important sort of guiding notion for the church at Corinth uh, as we go through this first of Paul's letters to them. Secondly, unity among Christians is a crucial gospel implication. Unity among Christians is a crucial gospel implication. That is to say, those who believe the gospel, who trust in Christ, should, as they gather together, find themselves unified, not divided. And then third, second only to Christ, mutual love for the body must be pursued above all else. Now, the church must pursue uh, pursue above everything Christ. But second to that, they're to pursue mutual love for the body, uh, mutual love and, and unity uh, that comes as a result of being together and being united in the gospel. Thinking about 1 Corinthians and the scope of redemption history, you know that we sum up redemption history. These four words, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. In the beginning, God created the universe, the world, everything in it. He created humanity for a relationship of worship and love and uh, and obedience to him. We, by our sin, beginning with our first parents, Adam and Eve, have fallen. We have uh, rebelled against God's uh, holy rule, holy law in our lives, his, his authority in our lives. We have fallen in our relationship to Him. The, the first fall happened in Genesis 3 as Adam and Eve uh, eat of that forbidden fruit. But then each of us continue in that fallen nature as we sin willingly and intentionally on a regular basis. God in his love for us does not leave us in sin. He doesn't leave us to be broken and separated from him forever. But he makes a way for our redemption. That is for our rescue from sin. And that is by sending his son, the second person of the Trinity, to take on flesh and a man named Jesus to live a perfect life without sin that he might on the cross be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. Jesus is raised from the dead so that by faith in him we might be saved. That's the, the climax of the redemption story. But all of this is ultimately uh, rolling forward still to a time when Jesus will come back again and God will set all things right in the world. He will consummate his kingdom. Uh, he, he will set all things right. He will judge sin perfectly, finally, and forever. He will reward those who have trusted in Christ and usher them into eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth. This letter of 1 Corinthians happens in this space in between redemption and consummation. The church is a product of God's redemption plan. The church is a product of God's saving gospel. But they have not yet, they're they not yet living in the consummated kingdom, right? Christ hasn't come again yet to judge the world finally and perfectly. So they're living in this in-between period. And, and we see as they live in the in-between period. So if you have a, uh, your pen or your pencil or crayon or lipstick, whatever you like to write with, uh, circle that little arrow in between redemption and consummation. That's kind of where 1 Corinthians falls here. Um, I had a thought and I stopped to say something else, and so I'm just going to move on because I forgot what it was. As you read 1 Corinthians, uh, as you read 1 Corinthians on your own and study it, know this that 1 Corinthians is an epistle, the same as Romans and the, the letters to Timothy and uh, uh, John's letters, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, all of those are epistles. These are letters. Epistles are often written to specific churches. With a specific occasion or a conflict to address. Now, in the case of 1 Corinthians, there are several conflicts to address. Most New Testament epistles begin with a theological foundation and then move toward practical application. In the case of 1 Corinthians, Paul gives a very quick theological foundation, and then he gets like straight to application. Uh, he just starts hitting all of their issues. But when reading 1 Corinthians on your own, in your own time, or reading any of the New Testament letters, I would uh, encourage you to use these questions to guide your reading and application of the Scripture to your life. First of all, what is the occasion, what's the issue that the author of the text is addressing? What are the problems in 1 Corinthians? We're going to see some of those. What are the, the things going on that, that maybe in some other letters that Paul or, um, or, or John or Peter might write? What are things that they're encouraging the church to do? That would be the occasion or the issue as well. Secondly, what theological principles... Uh, Or or principle is guiding the letter is there something that is that 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 is um, a a never changing principle of god that is that is pushing this letter forward that's that's kind of at the heart of of maybe paul's argument and certainly we've already said this before but um, but but the the main issue the 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 theological principle that is guiding the the letter to the first corinthians is that of unity unity in the body unity in the gospel uh, as a as a as a preventative tool against discord in the church. And then third, consider this question, in what ways is the occasion of the letter, in what way is the, the issue of the letter that is being written similar to our present day? Are there divisions in our church? And if so, what over? Is there, is there, uh, are there problems with our corporate worship? And if so, do they connect to the problems in corporate worship that we see the church in Corinth? Are there connections between what the, the church in Corinth is facing and what our church is facing? If so, then we can use Paul's instruction to the church in Corinth to address those issues in our church. If the issues are different or we're not in the same place, well, we still uh, uh, can, can use uh, certainly this letter to guide our ministry moving forward, that we don't find ...fall into some of those pitfalls that the church in Corinth fell into. Now, uh, turning our attention uh, uh, more concretely to the text of 1 Corinthians... Uh, ...you have on the first page of the inside of your, um, uh, of your note sheet there... ...a brief outline of 1 Corinthians, of the letter. I think I left that in there. First of all, we have uh, from chapters 1 through 4... ...we see factions in the church. Groups of people in the church that are dividing uh, over, over other individuals... Then in chapters 5 through 7, we have the issue of Christian sexual and marriage ethic and public lawsuits that Paul deals with. From there, he moves on in chapters 8 through 11 to talk about Christian conscience and using this case study of food offered to idols. In chapters 11 through 14, Paul addresses the issue of proper corporate Christian worship. When the church gathers together to worship, what should it look like? What should it do? What should it not do? How should it be together in, in worshiping? the risen Christ. Then fifth, in chapter 15, uh, Paul reminds the church of the gospel of Christ and the hope of the resurrection. So as to say, above all, don't forget this. And then in chapter 16, he gives final instruction uh, for them and and for their their giving to support um, other churches that are hurting. uh, And he gives his final greetings there in chapter 16. Well, let's then now, um, in a very formal way, turn our attention to the actual text of 1 Corinthians uh, where we see this church divided. Now, Paul begins his letter to the Corinthian church by giving thanks to God for their life in Christ and for the grace of God that has, worked, that has been working among them. In his thanksgiving, he also begins to remind the Corinthians of who they are by God's grace and to encourage them to pursue, pursue unity. He starts on a good note. Uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 4-9. through 9, He says, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given to you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you are enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revel- revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you in the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul starts off on a really good note. I am thankful for you, Paul says. And then very quickly, he moves away from the positive note to get right at their, their issues. And first, in chapters 1 through 4, we see Paul addressing the issue of leadership divisions. People divided over various leaders and teachers in the church. It doesn't take long for Paul to to dive into these issues that he heard were plaguing the Corinthians. As soon as he finished these initial greetings of of Thanksgiving, he gets to the first of their issues, uh, that there are specifically divisions among them around certain leaders and teachers in the church. You see there in chapter 1, verses 10 through 13. He says this, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that Chloe is a resident of of Corinth and a friend of Paul. She likely sent him a letter saying, These are the problems. It has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, who is also Peter, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The apostle writes. It would seem here that because Corinth... Uh, as a city, was so enamored with these itinerant speakers and philosophers that the Corinthian church had begun to divide themselves as parts of different schools of Christianity, if you will, depending on their favored teachers. Some of them really like what Paul taught, some of them really like how Apollos taught, some of them prefer Peter's ministry, and yet others pulled the Jesus card, right? Say, so, ah, I follow Christ. Paul combats their divisions by pointing to the inherent unity that is in Christ. Christ Himself is not divided, Paul says, and neither ought His body, the church, be divided. At the same time, Paul reminds them that they were not won to Christ by eloquent speech or uh, of worldly wisdom. They weren't won to Christ by these uh, itinerant philosophers speaking in the forum. They weren't won by the by the the uh, persuading speech of these traveling orators. But they were persuaded they were one with a gospel that seems foolish in the eyes of the world. He says in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Because the Corinthians are bought with the price of Christ's blood, they are built together in the power of the gospel to be a unified whole. As a church, they are the temple of God in whom the spirit of God dwells. But the Corinthians have instead been more impressed with their worldly status and possessions and wisdom than with the wonder of the gospel. Because of this, they need a kind correction. And thus Paul writes with a note of of sarcasm in his tone in chapter 4, verses 8 through 16. He says this. Now, now, as I read this, remember that that Corinth is at the center of major trade routes. It's a wealthy city. They've got a lot of stuff. Uh, They are well-to-do people who have responded to the gospel with faith. But this is what he says. uh, 1 Corinthians 4, verse 8. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. He says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then be imitators of me. The city of Corinth, the people that live there, living in a, a wealthy city, that think they have all that they have. This this feels in many ways like Marin County, the place where um uh, where I lived and went to seminary. Marin County is the the second most, uh, the second wealthiest. County per capita in the United States. The people that live there have everything that they need, except for the seminary students, because they po they, they so po they can't afford the O or the R. Um, but we live we lived cheaply on the seminary campus, because that's all that we could afford. But everyone else around us is just, just bathing in wealth. And yet, because they have all that they think that they need, they can't see the one thing that they need most, which is Christ. It seems that that same sort of uh, problem has infected the church at Corinth who thinks they know Christ, but yet they have all these other things. And because they have all these other things, they assume, they presume some sort of uh, special status about themselves. Paul says, right, you have all these things. And yet we, the apostles, have nothing. We're beaten and stricken and, and all these other things. We're considered the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Paul's pointing out the contrast between, um, uh, between what they assume of themselves in their wealth and in their possessions and how that compares to the life of the apostles, which is actually uh, quite rough, quite terrible for the sake of the gospel. All of it to point them back to, to, to say, look, church, you can have all the things in the world But if you don't have Christ and you're not united in him, you really don't have anything. You're falling apart at the seams. As we look at this first issue that Paul addresses in 1 Corinthians, we should be reminded that even today, any church who identifies themselves with the risen Savior and with the gospel must strive for unity by finding their identity in Christ and not in human teachers. We should not be as a church saying, well, I, I follow John MacArthur and I follow David Platt. And my favorite preacher is Stephen Baum, which, by the way, I don't hear nearly enough. Um, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But we shouldn't have those kinds of divisions, those kinds of. Oh, I'm a Calvinist. I'm an Arminian. I'm a this. I'm a that. Our theology, our salvation is not based in, in human individuals. Now, we, I thank God. I thank God for the, the many uh, 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 men who have loved Jesus and women who have loved Jesus and given their lives to fleshing out theology and, and those things of the Bible. that We might understand them better, right? But we don't build camps around certain theologians. And I'm not going to lead us as pastors of this church to build camps around certain theologians. If we're going to camp around anything as a church, we're going to camp around Christ and the gospel and the word clearly read, clearly understood, rightly applied to our lives. Secondly, chapters 5 through 7, Paul addresses in various different examples uh, issues of marriage and sex. And he says marriage and sex are serious matters. Now, there were lots of issues in the church in Corinth. And and you can imagine that this church being in a city where there's um, a a common practice of cultic, pagan, temple prostitution, that that these sort of issues would would eventually find their way into the church. In chapter 6, verses 12 through 13, Paul cites two Corinthian proverbs to help him to make a point. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. The second is this. He says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach is meant for food. Two popular proverbs floating around Corinth that the people in Corinth seemed to be repeating among themselves. It would seem that the principle of the second of these proverbs, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach is meant for food, had taken on a perverse understanding among the believers in Corinth, such that they viewed the body as an instrument to be used for sexual relations in careless and sinful ways. They're almost saying the body is meant for sex and sex is meant for the body. And Paul is saying there's a serious problem with that. So we find in chapter 5 verses 1 through 3 that this perversion of of what the body and and sexual relations, how, how all that works together, this perversion of understanding of God's intended ethic for marriage and for sex has led a man to begin an illicit affair, an illicit relationship with his stepmother. Even worse, the church seems to be applauding and encouraging this man. For the man's own sake, Paul in chapter 5 orders that this man be put out of the congregation, excommunicated. The purpose of this sort of excommunication is that the man who is living in unrepentant sin would develop a sincere and a godly sorrow and repentance from his sin. That he would see that, that him having this relationship with his stepmother is terrible for his soul. That, that in him continuing this relationship with his stepmother, he's actually saying by his actions, I don't really believe the gospel that I claim to believe. He's demonstrating that the Holy Spirit really, uh, uh, um, uh, in in responding in repentance as he's excommunicated, Paul's hope is that the man would demonstrate that the Holy Spirit really does live within him. And that as a result, the church also would would protect the integrity of the gospel and call this man to holy living. The same sort of holy living that they are all pursuing together in Christ. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food Paul says in chapter 6 verse 13 and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. In chapter 7 Paul moves on to give several commands and we don't have time to look at all of these deeply but several commands and instruction regarding marriage. So he moves from the issue of sex to the issue of marriage. And in summary fashion they are these there are three main things that he kind of kind of hits at here. First of all, in chapter 7, verses 1 through 5, he essentially says this, that sex is a good gift of God to a man and a woman united in marriage. Don't despise it. Is what Paul says. This is a good gift of God. Don't misuse it, but also don't despise it. Apparently, there were some in the church who were not, who who were saying, who were married, uh, men or women who were married, who were saying, we're not going to enjoy the, um, uh, the, the intimacy that comes as a part of marriage because that's unholy. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. That's a gift of God to your marriage for your benefit, for your closeness. Don't despise it. And then in chapter 7, verses 6 through 9 and 32 through 35. We see him hit on the other side. So he talks about marriage, but then he also talks about singleness. He says singleness and celibacy is also a good gift of God for greater gospel effectiveness. Third of all, in chapter 7, verses 10 through 16, divorce between a couple divided over the gospel. That is when you have one believing spouse and one unbelieving spouse. And and they divorce. The unbelieving spouse leaves the, the Christian spouse. Divorce between a couple divided over the gospel is always a tragedy, never to be pursued, Paul says. But it's also an instance, it's also an event for which the grace of God is plentiful for the believing spouse who's been abandoned by the unbeliever. Now, two points of application as we as we look at uh, Paul addressing these issues of marriage and sex being serious matters. First of all, marriage and, and sex as a function of monogamous heterosexual marriage, one man, one woman for life, are beautiful gifts of God to be treasured and stewarded with care by Christians. Churches must guard the sanctity of marriage within their membership and work to strengthen married couples in the Lord. Christian, are you looking out for, are you praying for other married couples that you know in the church? Are you praying for the strength of the marriages in our church? That, that they might uh, uh, grow in greater strength and unity around the gospel? Do we see marriages and families as, as those sanctifying agents of God in our lives to help us look more like Christ? I pray that we are. I hope that we, we, we continue to do that. But secondly, so first marriage, marriage and and sex are gifts of God to be stewarded and churches need to guard the sanctity of those things. But secondly, single and celibate Christians are also a gift of God to the church and to gospel work. Far from being second class Christians, theirs is a calling of God by which he glorifies himself greatly. Churches must include single Christians and every or unmarried Christians in every aspect of the church and endeavor to love and learn from and grow with them in faith and in ministry. Sing, God, those people that God has called to singleness in this life are a great gift to the church. They are able to give more time, more attention to things of God and the gospel because they're not distracted with things like husbands that can't seem to get their act together or kids that are running around the house. Now, the Spouses and children are all blessings of God. But the single person, Paul says, doesn't have those things contending for their, for their attention and for their affection. They can give more time devoted to Christ. What a great gift that is. Paul himself, being single, said, I, I wish that all of you in the church could be even as I am because he knows the blessing of being called to be single for the cause of Christ. Single, uh, very often in in, in the church and in churches, we look at marriage as this sort of like rite of passage for every Christian. And that if a Christian doesn't get married, that somehow they're, they're not like a proper Christian. Guys, that could not be further from the truth or further from what God's word says. Very clearly, God says he calls some people to be single, a difficult calling, but which is just as sanctifying as that of marriage and just as important and just as helpful to the life of the church. Let us love our unmarried Christian brothers and sisters. Let us include them in our families. Let us place them in positions of leadership in the church and and learn from them how to be sanctified by the kind of discipline that they're able to able to have in their lives uh, by, by what they're able to give to the Lord in the time that they have. Marriage and sex are serious matters to be dealt with seriously in the church, to be guarded, to be strengthened, to be undergirded. In chapters 8 through 11, Paul moves on from talking about married couples and those sorts of things, uh, and, and those who are single and perversions of things, to, uh, to the issue of, uh, really an issue of Christian conscience. In chapters 8 through 11, he makes the point here, that the church is to glorify God and to defer to their brother. You're to glorify God and defer to your brother. seems that another issue that became bothersome to the church at Corinth was this issue of eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. Being as Corinth was a major city and a center of pagan idolatry, there were all around them the byproducts of that idolatrous worship. It was common for Roman pagans to sacrifice animals to their various gods, in particular Apollo or Athena, uh, there in the temples of Corinth. And then they would take the butchered meat of that sacrifice. Which was often of very good quality. And it was sold in the market to paying customers. So you could... Go to the, the, the butcher tent in Corinth and get meat. There's like, you know, just your regular run-of-the-mill meat. And then there's the meat that's been sacrificed to idols, which is like your grade A Angus kind of stuff, right? The, the USDA choice sort of stuff. So you've got your like your, uh, your Smith's Select here on the one side, and then you've got the USDA choice, right? Which would have been the stuff that, that would have been uh, sacrificed to, to, um, to gods, to false gods in the temple there in Corinth. Now, apparently, some in the church had no issue with eating this meat, with going to the market, buying the meat, taking it home, cooking it, eating it, because they understood that the gods that the meat was offered to were really no gods at all. They're not false. These false gods are not gods. But others in the church saw a distinct connection between eating that meat and participating in the idol worship that it was sacrificed in. So you have people in the church dividing over whether it's okay to eat this meat or not. In chapter 8, verses 4 through 6, Paul addresses the powerlessness of the gods to which the meat was sacrificed. He says, therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence, and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom all things from from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. But Paul also notes that the freedom of conscience that one has in the emptiness of pagan theology can become a stumbling block to a brother or sister in Christ who struggles with understanding these things. So on the one hand, amongst those Christians who Paul says have knowledge, those are the terms that, that he uses, that, that don't have a crisis of conscience about eating meat that has previously been offered to idols uh, because those idols aren't real gods and, and there's no spiritual significance necessarily to eating that meat, buying that meat, serving it in your home. There are those in the church who do see a problem with that. And Paul, to them, says this in, Rome, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 10 through 13. Paul says, you as a Christian have every right to give up your rights for the sake of your brother or sister and their growth in Christ that they may not stumble. Paul says, for those of you who have confidence that you know when you eat this meat that's been previously sacrificed to idols, that you're not really participating in idol worship, you're not participating in idolatry, you have freedom to eat that meat. It's okay, right? It's good meat, eat it. But there are people in the church who have problems with that. So he says, if you know that a brother or sister in the church has a problem with eating that meat that's been offered to an idol because they still see idol worship attached to eating that meat. He says, for the sake of your brother, for the sake of your sister, don't eat the meat. It's better that they grow up in their faith and grow up into their knowledge and, 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 and have a, a clearer understanding of the, the freedom of conscience that we have as a believer in matters like this than to go on eating your meat and destroy their conscience. As an example of the merit of giving up, uh, one, uh, of a Christian giving up their rights for the benefit of another, Paul points to himself as an example. In Romans, uh, Romans, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 23, Paul says this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them to the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews to those under the law. I became as one under the law, though not myself being under the law that I might win those who are under the law to those outside the law. I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ that I might win those who are outside of the law to the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. And to sum it all up, he gives one simple command to guide their thinking on issues of eating and drinking, and for that matter, all conduct. 1 Corinthians 10, verses 31 through chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says this. So then whether you eat or whether you drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, he says, as I am of Christ. As we look at these matters of of conscience and and deferring to others in the church for the sake of our our mutual growing up together and our mutual unity, we can, I think, draw from Scripture this application. That in matters where Scripture does not clearly direct the conscience, like eating meat offered to idols, uh, Scripture does not clearly say, don't eat it or do eat it. Paul says it's an issue of conscience. In matters where Scripture does not clearly direct our conscience, Christians should act with deference to others to protect their walk, their work, and their witness for the glory of God and the benefit of other believers. I've stolen this principle from one of my seminary professors because it's so good and it is so helpful for guiding and guarding my own heart and life and in matters of conscience as a Christian. Um, It was my New Testament professor in seminary, and he said this. He said, when I think about issues of conscience, Uh, things that scripture has not clearly commanded or clearly condemned. How do I deal with these things? He said, I asked myself this question. If it's going to harm my walk with Christ, if it's going to harm my work for Christ, or if it's going to harm my witness for Christ, then I don't do it. I don't do it. And he also asked, he answers the question the other way too. If it's going to harm somebody else's walk with Christ, I don't do it. If it's going to harm somebody else's work for Christ and that it messes with how they understand uh, the, the freedom that they have in Jesus, I'm not going to do that thing. And if it's going to mess with somebody else's witness, if me you know, eating, eating this one meal is going to mess with somebody else's witness to Christ because now they're going to be confused about who Christ is and they're not going to know how to communicate the gospel, he says, I just won't do it. It's far easier for me, he would say, to just say no to some things that I know I have freedom in Christ to do so that I can say yes to building up my brother, and my sister in Christ. So, friends, as you think about those issues of conscience, those issues on things which Scripture does not give a clear command or clear condemnation, Ask yourself this question. Is it going to harm or hinder my walk, my work, or my witness for Christ? And will it do the same for someone else? If so, in any way, I won't do that thing so that we can all be built up together. Paul moves from this issue of uh, dealing with conscience in the church and the division that that was causing to now other issues related to worship in the church. In chapters 11 through 14, we find that right worship is loving worship. The right kind of worship in church is a loving kind of worship. Now, the so-called worship wars in churches during the 1970s through the 1990s, even spilling over into the 2000s, over music style, particularly, while divisive, those worship wars hardly hold a candle to the divisions in worship that were in the Corinthian church. And there were three issues of particular importance to Paul here in these chapters. First, in chapter 11, verses 2 through 16, we have issues of appropriate appearance. Issues of appropriate appearance, appropriate dress. Here Paul appeals to the authority that God ordains in the world. He says the father has functional authority over the son. The son has, functional, has authority over the church. And Christian husbands have authority over their wives. As a result, he says in chapter 11 verses 4 through 7. As a result, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut her hair or to shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man." What in the world is Paul saying here? And before you take out all of your rotten tomatoes to throw them in this general direction, let me explain what is happening. In this case, it is helpful for us to remember that in Corinth, cultic prostitution was a major issue in this largely pagan city. Now, temple prostitutes were known then by the way that they dressed. In particular, by the way that they wore their hair. Now, the typical practice of a temple prostitute, it seems, in Corinth was to wear her hair down and flowing as a symbol of her occupation. It was her uniform, so to speak. Married women, however, in Corinth would either wear a shawl over their head or wear their hair in in an updo, like in a bun, to indicate that they were taken, that they were married, that they were not cultic prostitutes. With these contextual clues in mind, we find that Paul is not saying all women must wear shawls or hats in church, but that women should avoid all forms of immodest distraction in church. He's saying, when you gather together, ladies, don't come to church dressed like a prostitute. Especially as such a... It's okay to laugh. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yes, Lord Jesus. Ladies. Help us. Um, so don't dress like a prostitute to, to be a distraction in church or, or in, in turn being a distraction church, especially as doing that would cause shame to their husbands or to other married men. A woman who is dressed as a prostitute, but who is married, brings shame on her husband. And a woman who is dressed as a prostitute and distracting, uh, a, a, a believing woman who's dressed as a prostitute or dressed in, in immodest or, or, or distracting ways causes shame upon other men in the church whose, whose, uh, whose eyes and, who my, and whose minds may go to places they ought not as they gather together. But considering the same principle for men, so men, were not, we're not excluded in this issue. Considering the same principle for men, all men should act and comport themselves in the body of Christ to give the utmost glory to Christ in their submission to him as Lord. As silly as it is, Paul says, for a woman to shave her head, it's just as silly for a man to wear his hair long. That is, for a man to wear his hair like a prostitute, for a man to dress like a, like a cultic temple prostitute. Paul says, dress with respect, dress with modesty. Why? Because the minds and the eyes of the body and their building up are far more important than how you think it is okay to dress. Now, this principle is applied in different cultures in different ways. we all have, every different culture has different uh, conventions for what is modest or what is immodest. Um, Folks, we don't need to get real specific about this. You know what is modest and you know what is immodest. Ladies, you know what is a a good way to dress in church and what is an inappropriate way. Men, you know what are proper ways to act in church and what are improper ways to act in church. Just keep in mind that as you uh, prepare your heart and your mind and your wardrobe for worship each week. He moves from issues, Paul moves from issues of appropriate appearance to then in chapter 11, issues regarding the Lord's Supper, particularly in uh, verses eleven or, or 17 through 34 of chapter 11. Now we read 1 Corinthians 11 almost every time that we take the Lord's Supper together as a church. But less often do we consider that these verses about the Lord's Supper actually take place in the context of Paul's very harsh rebuke of the church at Corinth and their practice of the Lord's Supper. There in that church, sharp divisions were made between the wealthy members of the church and the poor members of the church at the Lord's table. Wealthy members would gather to eat while poor members were still at work, and the wealthy members would gorge themselves and get drunk on wine, leaving nothing for the poorer members who had less money and less provisions to buy food for themselves, leaving nothing for the poor members when they came together with the body to gather to eat. Friends, can you imagine the disgrace Paul, disgusted by this practice among the Corinthians, instructs them this way. In chapter 11, verses 33 and 34, he says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, particularly the Lord's Supper, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About other things, he'll give direction. When he comes, he says... The Lord's Supper is a, it, we've said before, it's an ordinance of the church. It's a thing, it's a thing that Christ has given us as a body and, and to every church uh, to do regularly. It's a part of the, the discipline of our worship together. When we unite together around one loaf and one cup, signifying the one body and the bloodshed of our one Lord, we are together saying that we have submitted our lives to this one Jesus. And we're saying that we do it. Together, there's a a sense of unity. There's a there's a putting on of the team jersey, if you will, when we share the Lord's Supper together. We're saying that yes, we trust Christ, all of us together. Yes, we are walking in repentance of our sins. Yes, we are relying upon Jesus each and every day for the strength that we need through the day and to be a witness for Him. And yes, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes again. As we share in this, how divisive is it then when amongst the body? Wealthy people get to eat the Lord's Supper first and poor people get to eat it later. That is to, that is to tear the team jersey off of certain people on the team because you just don't like who they are or what they look like or how they come now, this meal is for all who are, who are together professing faith in the risen Lord. We take it together. We do it this way on purpose. And we, and we, and we do it irrespective of, of gender, of race, of nationality, of length of time spent walking with the Lord. Because this meal is for all and it unites us in Christ's death. Paul continues with the second issue or the, uh, excuse me, the third issue. Uh, that was plaguing the worship in the church. And that is issue, the issue of spiritual gifts and their exercise in chapters 12 through 14. Speech, we have already seen that the act of speech, being an eloquent speaker, was a serious commodity in Corinth. If you could put together a 30-minute speech without saying um or uh and be uh, compelling in that speech, people liked you in Corinth. Speech was a serious commodity, particularly spiritual or supernatural speech, all the more so would seem to be the pro, uh, an issue in the church. Paul addresses at length, this matter of speaking in tongues in First Corinthians. Now, this is not the kind of speaking in tongues that we find in Acts chapter 2, where at Pentecost, the apostles and the believers are speaking known languages in the power of the Holy Spirit that they previously did not know. This kind of speaking in tongues Paul talks about in First Corinthians would seem to be the kind that is understood to be this sort of ecstatic utterance of unintelligible syllables, a prayer language, as some would say. This kind of speaking in tongues was prevalent among the church at Corinth. Now, while Paul does not, in his letter, discourage them from speaking in tongues, uh, in tongues this way as a, a part of their prayer life, he doesn't say, don't do this. He does, likewise, nowhere command it. He doesn't say, you must do this. But he does discourage them from exercising speaking in tongues willy-nilly. from just doing it whenever they feel or as a show of some sort of status in the church. Rather, Paul reminds the church at Corinth that they are one body having received many gifts from the same spirit. And as the spirit gives many gifts, so should the many gifts be exercised, especially those, those gifts that build up the whole body. So look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 through 5. Paul says here this, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Now, prophecy is not necessarily foretelling what is coming in the future, but is speaking a word of the Lord, a particular application to the church. He says, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God, for no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. The one who speaks in a tongue builds up himself, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. Now I want you all to speak in tongues, Paul says, but even more to prophesy. That is to say, I want you all to have all of the gifts. The one who prophesies is greater, though, than the one who speaks in tongues, unless someone interprets so that the church may be built up. Paul says all of the gifts given by the spirit are good for the body are to be used for the building up of the church. But only as they build up the church. Gifts that the Spirit gives us are not to be used to draw attention to ourselves or to promote some sort of uh, pursuit of social status or reputation in the church, but to be used for the the discipleship, for the better following of Jesus of the rest of the body. And prophesying in the church, speaking a word of God, an intelligible word of God that connects to his already written and spoken word to us, builds up the body way more than a person speaking in, in some sort of unknown language in prayer to God. Paul says, pursue the gifts that build up the body. Then in 1 Corinthians 13, jumping back a chapter, Paul gives the answer to all issues of division in worship in the church. The answer to all issues of division in the church simply is love. I want to read 1 Corinthians 13. This is what Paul says. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love... I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, he's speaking then of when Christ returns, when when the world is made new, when we see Jesus face to face. For now we see in a a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Christian, when you worship with the church, seek not what you stand to gain from it, but what God would have you give in loving service to build others up. In our entertainment culture, we have been conditioned to go places to be entertained, to be pleased, to, to be contented with what we see and with what we hear. I went to a basketball, this game, the, the basketball game this afternoon right after I left church and I was thoroughly entertained and I screamed my brains out. I had a really good time at that basketball game. I go to basketball games to be entertained, but friends, I don't come to church to be entertained and neither should you. If the reason you come to church on Sunday morning is to hear something that will make you feel better, that will make you feel better, You're coming for the wrong reason. If you're coming to church on Sunday morning or on Sunday evening. So that you can be entertained. You're coming for the wrong reason. If you're coming so that you can be seen by people. You're coming for the wrong reason. The only proper reason to attend the worship of this church. Or any church where you happen to be a member. Is to build up the body of believers that are gathered together together there in that place. Church doesn't exist for you. Specifically it exists for us corporately that we together might look more like christ as we love one another bear with one another help one another carry one another's burdens So be faithful to attending worship, but not for your own sake worship for the sake of those around you Have you ever thought or considered how on sunday mornings or or even sunday evenings when we sing songs together How your singing might edify a brother or sister next to you? Have you ever thought about maybe? So, so we don't always sing all of my favorite songs. Danny knows this. We talk about it during the week. But look, but we sing a lot of really great songs, and even the ones that aren't my favorite, I love to sing. Do you know why? Because I get to sing with you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Because these are, even though I may not like a particular song, it may not be number one on my, my playlist, it's, the, the songs that we sing are still songs of the gospel. These are songs that are still true. And whether they're new or whether they're old, they're exalting Christ. They're reminding us of the gospel that we have, of the salvation we have in Jesus. Friends, brothers, sisters, sing loudly at church. Sing with gumption at church. Even, maybe especially, the songs that you don't like. Because I promise you that the people around you are listening. And they know when you don't sing, and they know when you do sing. And if you don't sing on one song, but you do sing on the next song, what are you saying to the brother and sister next to you who's paying attention to that? That you're making choices about when you will decide to worship when the body gathers. A body that is united around love of the gospel and love of Christ uh, sings together to build one another up. It is a body that worships together not to be entertained but to be edified and equipped as we walk with one another following Jesus. When you worship with the church, seek not what you stand to gain from it Christian, but what God would have you give in loving service to build others up. Could you imagine? Can you imagine The wonderful blessing of God that we would see, the kind of spiritual growth and edification we would see in our body if all of us were coming here on each and every Sunday, not to have our own needs met, but to meet the needs of others. I challenge us to do that. Finally, in chapter 15, Paul says, above all, in all that you do, church, remember the gospel. Paul closes this letter to this divided church with a reminder of the one thing that binds them all together. The good news of salvation in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 1 through 8. Paul says this. I would remind you brothers of the gospel I preached to you. Which you received. In which you stand. And by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you. Unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, he says, so as to say, go ask them if you need proof, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. The one thing that must be at the heart of every church, we talked about this a couple of Sunday mornings ago, must be the gospel. If we can't unite around the gospel, we're we're playing a game that we're never going to win. Paul says the same thing to the church. The one thing that has saved all of you the same way must be the one thing that unites you, the gospel. And in light of Christ's death, but especially his resurrection, some believers in the church at Corinth seem to be confused about the resurrection of Jesus and whether it would even happen and how it would take place. They believe that Christ died for sins, but there's confusion over his resurrection and the resurrection of others. Paul assures the church that Christ has indeed been raised and the gospel is true and valid in chapter 15, verses 19 to 21. He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection from the dead. There is here in chapter 15, verse 29, a reference to a practice known as baptism for the dead. Now, this is the only place, the only reference to this practice in Scripture. And Paul does not condone it, neither does he condemn it, but he uses it as an opportunity to say this. If the resurrection were not a reality, why would you even have such a practice called baptism for, for the dead? Now, it's an odd occurrence in Scripture, this issue of baptism for the dead, for which we may never have a firm answer in this life. But we can say with confidence that baptism, whether of a living person or on behalf of a dead person, has no power in and of itself to save. It is only by faith in Christ, his death and resurrection, that we may be forgiven of sins and look forward to the resurrection. That in part is why we only baptize living believers in this church. Okay, Because that just seems the best way to do it. The resurrection, though, Paul says, not just that Christ was raised, but that he'll raise others as well. This resurrection is something to to look forward to. As Paul says, he says uh, in chapter 15, verses 42 to 49, what is sown is, is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, but it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, citing Genesis there. And then he says, the last man, the last Adam, uh, that is Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust, speaking of Adam. The second man, Jesus, is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, in our flesh, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus, in his resurrected, glorified body. Paul closes his letter with this reminder of the gospel that saves us, of Christ's death, of his resurrection, and the promise of our resurrection, so as to say, church, rally around these things. Remember these things. Hold one another up and hold one another accountable to these things. And in it, you will find unity. In it, in that, you can overcome obstacles and division to the body. In the last chapter of 1 Corinthians, chapter 16... Paul gives some specific instruction for caring for other believers um, uh, who, who are in other churches around the area who are going through difficult times, times of famine to support them. Uh, he also gives some other various instructions, final instructions um, to those who who are there in the church. But this is how he closes his letter in, in chapter sixteen, verse twenty three. He says, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. And that's significant because Paul has just raked the Corinthian church over the coals of God's sanctifying word and instruction. And it's one thing to discipline a child. It's another thing to discipline a child and not help them to learn or help them to feel loved after the fact. Paul sets a great example for, for, uh, for other ministers in the church. That even when we have hard things to say, that we still show those that we are leading the grace of the Lord Jesus and the love of Christ to be with the the, the love of Christ be with all of us. Martin Luther once said that he was not ashamed or afraid to uh, to spank or to uh, uh, to to uh, punish corporally his children. But he said, every time after after I do, I always give them an apple. So it has to say, I love you. This is for your good. It's for your edification. And I still give good things to you. I have your best in mind. So also God has the best in mind for the church at Corinth as he leaves them with Paul's greetings of grace and his assurance of love. Now, what what about finding the connection to Christ? How is Christ prominent here in the letter of 1 Corinthians? First of all, and briefly, Christ is the head of his unified body, the church. Christ is the head. Not any man, not any woman, not any preacher, not any Sunday school teacher, but Christ. Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 to 13, and then verse 27. Just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of one body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Verse 27 of chapter 12, now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Church Christ is the head of the church at Corinth and he's the head of this church and he's the head of every church that bears his name and faithfully walks in discipleship to him. It is he that we follow, which is exactly the, the second point that Paul makes throughout this letter, that Christ is the example that the church is to follow. Jesus, who gave his life and was raised from the dead for the salvation of many, is the one whom Paul has dedicated to emulating in his living. He is the example. Christ is the example that Paul is following. He says in chapter 9, verses 19 through 23, we read this earlier. Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak that I might win the weak. I've become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. So, by the way, did Jesus. He says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. And as we saw in chapter 11, verse 1, he says, be imitators of me. Follow my example as I'm an imitator." of Christ. Finally, as we just saw in chapter 15, the importance of Christ's resurrection from the church that that Paul reminds the church and we need to be reminded also that Christ is raised from the dead so that we might also be. Christ isn't just raised from the dead for our justification, though certainly he is, but he's also raised from the dead so that we might be raised from the dead too. Paul says this in chapter 15, God has saved us in Christ that he might raise us from the dead with bodies incorruptible, glorified even as Christ is now that we might live forever with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Christian, in your understanding of the gospel, in your preaching of the gospel to those that need to hear it, don't neglect Christ's resurrection from the dead and don't neglect our resurrection from the dead because that is our hope in Christ that when we die our, our life does not end, that it is not over but just as Christ was raised, so also Will he raise us to spend eternity with him Praise God As we think about this church that was divided Over many different things in Corinth And we thank God that through Paul And and even the problems of this church That we have help in being a church that is not divided We now have the privilege of entering into a time where we communicate and we share the particular unity that we have in Jesus and in the gospel as we take the Lord's Supper. I'm going to pray and as I do, I ask you to begin to prepare your hearts and your minds.